0: From Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Donald Ryan will join us to discuss unconventional archaeology. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000, and our world-famous question a week, coming right up, here on the Grok's Science Show. the Rocks Science Show. Well, archaeology is often portrayed in the popular media as a romantic adventure in exotic locations. But what is the daily life of an archaeologist really like? What does it take to find adventures as an unconventional archaeologist? Joining us today to discuss the issue is Dr. Donald P. Ryan. Dr. Ryan is the noted American archaeologist, Egyptologist, and writer and currently in the Division of Humanities at Pacific Lutheran University. Author of numerous scientific and popular works on the subject, his new book, Beneath the Sands of Egypt, Adventures of an Unconventional Archaeologist, explores the fascinating world of archaeology for a general audience. Dr. Ryan, thank you very very much for joining us today on the Rocks Science Show.
1: Well, thank you for in- inviting me on to your very cool show. <laughs>
0: well, thank you very much for calling our show very cool. This is really a very fascinating book, Beneath the Sands of Egypt. And I'm just curious, why did you decide to write the book?
1: Well, I find uh, as I go around doing lectures at you know, archaeology societies and at conferences and so forth, there's a huge number of people interested in archaeology. And you look on television, there's a tremendous number of programs on archaeology. Some of it's scientific, some of it's not very scientific, but there's a huge interest. And I look around, and sure, there's some good books on archaeology covering all kinds of subjects, but there are very few that are actual personal accounts. Where you have an archaeologist telling you what it's like to experience, say, opening a tomb in Egypt or living out in the desert or whatnot. I found that sort of striking. In fact, in my own field, I think the last book, sort of similar to what I'm doing, came out in the late 90s. And it was about another archaeologist working in the Valley of the Kings, and he was describing his discoveries from a first hand point of view. So I'm very surprised that more archaeologists aren't really addressing need for people who want to know what it's like to dig out in the desert and all the, uh, the details of putting together a dig and finding things and dealing with what you find.
0: Why do you think this is? Why do you think archaeologists don't usually present it in this fashion?
1: It could be how they're trained. In graduate school, a lot of people are trained how to write very good scientific articles. They're trained how to write grant proposals that's necessary for a lot of the work to take place, but they're not necessarily trained to be popular writers. And you may find this elsewhere in science where there's sometimes a prevailing attitude that if you somehow present your work in a palatable fashion to the public that somehow you're selling out or you're dumbing it down or you're pandering to the masses. Well, I say that the average reader and educated person is very interested in this stuff. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it at all to make it fun and accessible. I, in fact, I think it actually promotes whatever field of science you might have, happen to be working in.
0: Indeed, indeed. I think that the trend in science is to remove yourself from it and, in a sense, putting yourself into the story is discouraged.
1: Yeah, well, that, there's room for both. The overwhelming literature and archaeology in most fields is technical. And that's important and, it, and it's essential. But I think that there's an interest on how science and archaeology and such are actually accomplished. And when I look at an archaeological report, or I look at my own work, I see two stories. I see the scientific story, and then there is the story of, of doing the work, and they go hand in hand, and they're both very interesting, and they both serve different purposes. So. You look at an archaeological discovery, like, like Tomb of Tutankhamun, which is so famous. You can say, oh my gosh, look at the things they found in there, and what can the objects tell us, what are they made out of? You can do all this descriptive kind of stuff, and maybe come up with some great conclusions about ancient Egyptian life and technology and such. But there's another story, and that's the story of what led to the tomb's discovery what were the variables around you know, the social variables and the environmental variables and all these things, the personalities of the people involved, which I think is very, very fascinating because science is not sterile. You look at these reports in, in any number of scientific journals, and there they are, and that's great data, but there's a, another story behind it. And I think that story is not told very often, and it's often at least as fascinating. It might even be more fascinating than the scientific results because. You might be on a search for one thing or another, find nothing that one might consider useful, but the search was darn interesting. But nobody knows, because nobody shares it.
0: And certainly, I think the characters in archaeology are are sort of an interesting bunch.
1: Well, that's an understatement. (laughs) In my book, I describe one of the first Egyptologists, and it's very controversial to even call him an archaeologist or an Egyptologist. He was the first guy to excavate in the Valley of the Kings, which is the famous cemetery in Egypt where King Ted's tomb was found. His background was as a very large Italian circus performer, and he worked for years in London in the theater and doing a strongman act, wearing you know flamboyant costume and, and lifting heavy objects, basically a sideshow performer. He ends up in Egypt because apparently had a background in hydraulics. Giovanni um, Belzoni. Giovanni Belzoni, and ended up more or less being stranded there. was commissioned to remove some very large statuary, a long distance that, that has since ended up in the British Museum. But he started a whole career for about four years, and unlike some of his contemporaries, he was very careful. He was drawing things in place. He was making a record. He was doing all kinds of things that today are standard archaeological technique. That nobody was doing much of for for years to come, so you have these sort of improbable characters, and then even even Howard Carter himself, fellow who found king tut 's tomb, very curious career. He started out as a teenager who was talented in painting portraits of animals in. Britain. So you might be a a wealthy individual with a horse or a fancy dog, and you might hire young Howard Carter to do a painting of your pet. He ended up in Egypt as a draftsman recording inscriptions and paintings, and eventually became an archaeologist. And is probably still the most famous real archaeologist to this day, even though he's been dead since about 1939.
0: And your own interest in archaeology, how did that come about
1: well, it started with dinosaurs. I liked dinosaurs, the, the whole discovery aspects of it, the sort of adventurous aspects of it, and that also led to an appreciation of archaeology. And when I was a kid, I was a, quite a bookworm. I spent a lot of time reading National Geographic about archaeological discoveries all over the world, but Egypt was always my favorite. So I've had an interest in the subject since I was very young.
0: And what is the training typically like for an archaeologist?
1: Well, the academic training, which is vital, but there's also the field training. And I was really lucky when I started graduate school that I had a professor who had just finished his first field season digging in Egypt. And he invited me along to go the next summer. And so my first summer in graduate school, I ended up spending three months in a remote village uh, working in Egypt, and I really fell in love with the place, and I really couldn't get enough of it. And so kept on coming back, working on projects, and eventually I started my own project uh, in the Valley of the Kings, where I've been working for, for quite a number of years.
0: Uh, describe the Valley of the Kings.
1: Well, it is a fascinating place. It was the royal cemetery for the rulers of what some people might call Egypt's golden age. It's called the New Kingdom. And the cemetery was in use from about 1,500 to 1,000 B.C. And it's a virtual who's who of all the famous rulers of Egypt during that time period. So most of their tombs are right there. And they tend to be beautifully decorated. Some of them are very large tombs. They're situated in a remote desert valley. I think the original idea was to make it more secure because all the pyramids and such from earlier eras had been woefully robbed, so even building a giant monument out of stone never kept robbers away from the tombs. So, during the New Kingdom, another strategy was adopted, which was to build the tombs in a remote valley, in fact, above it there's a pyramid-shaped peak that some people say was part of the, the choice of the location, the idea that it would be remote and easily guarded. Well, most of the tombs are robbed, so that didn't work, but nonetheless, that's the Valley of the Kings in a nutshell.
0: And tell me about uh, KB-60.
1: Okay. Well, what I'm doing, uh, I try and do different things. You know, the name of my book or the subtitle is Unconventional Archaeologist. You say, what does that mean? Well, part of my training was in interdisciplinary approaches, and also I have a, a background in the arts and so forth, so I try and be creative and different in the way I approach things. So it's easy to go to the Valley of the Kings and marvel at these big decorated royal tombs. But what most people don't see is that scattered amongst these big tombs are these little pits and little shafts all over the place. And these represent small, undecorated tombs, most of which were found 100 years ago or so, and have been virtually ignored by Egyptologists who gravitate towards the big, decorated royal tombs. So I decided when I started in the Valley of the Kings, I wanted to do something different. And so I started excavating these tombs and found all kinds of surprises, including uh, what appear to be royal mummies. And in the case of Tomb 60, it's a bit of a strange story because Tomb 60, I should mention all these tombs have numbers assigned to them. Tomb 60 had been found 100 years before and was virtually lost. It had been found in 1903 by some people on a, looking for big royal tombs. It's a small and decorated, crudely carved tomb They looked in there, saw it's robbed in antiquity, there's a couple mummies in there, and they thought it was essentially boring. Covered it up, its location was lost, and I really had no interest in looking for it because I had a series of tombs nearby whose entrances I could more or less determine. But a well-known Egyptologist said, well, if you're in the area, you ought to put Tomb 60 on your uh, permission list just in case you have time, maybe you'll look for it. Well, as it turned out, we rediscovered the long-lost Tomb 60 on our first day of work in less than a half hour using a broom. And when we opened this tomb, we found a mummy lying on the floor, amongst a lot of other things. Very well-preserved mummy, first-class mummification job, striking a pose that seems to indicate a royal female of the appropriate time period, the early part of the New Kingdom. Someone had suggested if this tomb were ever to be rediscovered, perhaps the long missing mummy of the famous female pharaoh Hatshepsut might be found within. But we had nothing in the tomb with its undecorated walls and bashed up artifacts that could indicate who this mummy could possibly be. So it's a very, very interesting tomb, and it wasn't until about two, three years ago that Dr. Zahi Hawass, who's the head of antiquities in Egypt, started a project to see if he can identify long missing mummy of Hatshepsut and the mummy from tomb 60 was in the mix and using a combination of DNA and some really weird fortuitous discoveries it's been conventionally uh, identified as Hatshepsut that's a little bit about that particular tomb but I've worked in six others and every one of them has a has a fascinating story associated with it both in terms of what we find and the data that we derive from it, but also the story of the people who were involved. One of the tombs was discovered by Belzoni and then covered over. Another, or three of them, Howard Carter was involved with. So there's a backstory to all these things that is interesting, plus the discoveries themselves are terrific.
0: Well, why do you think tombs like Tomb 60 were largely ignored or or forgotten?
1: Well, it was a different mindset back then. You know, it's very easy to sit in our easy chairs and criticize some of our predecessors. Belzoni didn't have radiocarbon dating. I mean, we can't criticize him for that. And Howard Carter, back when he was working, the tombs that he discovered that I re-excavated, he did early in his career, 1901, 1902, 1903, a full 20 years before the tomb of Tutankhamun. And the archaeological standards back then were still very much in formation. So you know, I'll re-excavate these tombs, they leave most of the stuff in there because they're looking for nice things. Even 100 years ago, they were still had that kind of mindset, and they were looking for big tombs. But that was their mindset. It was a different way of thinking, different priorities, and different techniques. And even Belzoni comment all the time about the stuff in the British Museum that Belzoni stole. Well, he didn't steal it. It was a different time period. And for much of the 19th century, people were more or less allowed to take out what they wanted. You get permission, and you could buy antiquities, you could take them if the powers that be allowed it. And we have to really understand different ways of thinking and doing things over the last few hundred years than try to be harshly judgmental from 2010.
0: So is it, in your sense, then, sort of following this unconventional path by looking where others have ignored?
1: It's easy to kind of do the usual stuff. I don't want to do the usual stuff. So in my book, I try and give examples where I resurrect unknown excavations that were unpublished from 100 years ago. And there's lots of data and interesting stories that can be mined from archives that have been you know, ignored or lost for decades and decades and decades. It's really important stuff. You can dig in the Valley of the Kings and look different. And with the Valley of the Kings, people have been saying, even Belzoni in in 1817, there's nothing left to find. Another prominent excavator who found many tombs in the Valley of the Kings, he said around 1913 or so, nothing left to find in the Valley of the Kings. And some people have that attitude, well, I don't. Every one of these interesting tombs that we've excavated or re-excavated or rediscovered, are amazing. And I'm kind of glad that people thought that way back in the past because I don't mind picking up their mess. You know, on the other extreme, I'm interested, unlike most people, in what you might call mundane technology. So in my book, I have a chapter about ancient Egyptian rope, which people would, in face value, would think is a real yonner, but I have a background as a mountain climber, so I, I like ropes and so forth. And when you start thinking about it, if you're going to build a pyramid, you're going to be dragging huge statues around. You've got to have some technology involved, whether it's wooden rollers, but certainly ropes. It's sort of the unsung technological hero of these Egyptian monuments and so forth. And so I was one of the first to take a look at this stuff and and study it scientifically and identify the materials. And so I'm trying to look at things, some of them which personally fascinate me and that's why I choose to do it, but others that uh, I think are really important but ignored because it's so easy to concentrate on the big stuff in a place like Egypt where so much has survived so well.
0: Do you think this is giving us a more refined picture of life in early Egypt?
1: Well, it all adds to the picture, and what I try and do in in this chapter in the book is convince the reader that little technologies like this are actually quite fascinating. So I talk about how you know, we found the samples and how we had to go to Egypt and make a reference collection so that we could do uh, the uh, botanical, you know, micro-anatomical identifications in the laboratory and how some of these actual specimens have amazing histories to them. One of them was found by Belzoni in a tomb hanging down into a shaft and when we radiocarbon dated it, or actually we didn't, somebody radiocarbon dated it, it dates to the period when the tombs were being robbed near the end of the New Kingdom. So here you have this artifact recovered very uh, I would futuristically, I'd say, given the time period by Belzoni. That has a great history to it. There are probably ancient tomb robbers scrambling up and down this thing. And then later on, the priests came and removed all the mummies to stow them in secret places. They were probably hauling coffins and mummies down with this one would look at as this dirty, ugly little artifact that's a piece of rope. But behind it, a really fascinating story.
0: I'm curious uh, if you can tell us about your association with Thor Heyerdahl.
1: Well, Thor Heyerdahl for those who aren't familiar, is a Norwegian archaeologist and explorer and writer who first became famous by testing an historical archaeological idea that some of the first inhabitants of Polynesia were from South America, because there's a lot of cultural parallels. Things like the sweet potato, which is the staple of Polynesia, a South American plant. Well, he had this idea, and, and everyone said, no, it's not possible. The South American people didn't have boats. So he said, well, they did, the Spanish, when they came to South America and wrecked the place. They saw all these people floating up and down the coast on big balsa rafts. And he said, oh, they're shore-hugging, they'd never survive. Well, Heyerdahl said, well, there's one way to find out. And he built a big experimental, prehistoric South American balsa raft, launched it in the winds and currents of the Pacific and ended up in Polynesia three months later. And he became this very famous guy And the raft was named Kontiki, and he wrote a book called Contiki, which everyone loved, and so Kontiki was a book my father gave me when I was very young, and that's another thing that really got me excited about adventure and exploration and archaeology. So Thor Heyerdahl was my boyhood hero, and I read all of his stuff. He went on and did more experimental sea voyages. He was the first to do a scientific excavations on Easter Island. That's a long, impressive career, and he wrote great books, and that's probably one reason I'm trying to... You know, share my adventures this is because Thor Heyerdahl led the way in kind of popularizing this sort of thing. So anyway, I've followed his work for years and then I'm doing some research in London in the early 90s in the Royal Geographical Society. I'm walking out for the day and in comes Thor with, with this entourage of annoying paparazzi and journalists. As famous as he was, he was really embarrassed of being a celebrity and I went in there and I shoved my hand out and introduced myself and said, oh, you never ever need a, an archaeologist to carry your canteen around. Uh, you let me know. And he said, stay in touch. Well, a couple years later, I had an opportunity or a reason to stay in touch. And he invited me to meet him. And it turned into a seven-year collaboration where I worked with him until uh, he died in 2002.
0: Uh, quite a bit of serendipity there.
1: Oh, it was, it was tremendous. I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. And those seven years were fantastic. I suppose there's always a fear that you're going to meet your heroes in science or wherever and find out that they're real jerks. But this guy was one of the brightest, most fun, compassionate fellows I've ever met in my life. And he was an inspiration from the moment I met him until uh, probably the moment I first read his book, Tiki to the day he died. So I was really, really fortunate to have that experience. And this guy was an original thinker, and I'd like to think that I've been positively influenced by him in trying to do things a bit differently.
0: Well, that's a great story. I'm wondering to close if maybe you can give some advice to uh, those out there who are thinking about a career as an archaeologist.
1: Well, in terms of a career... At the moment, there's not a heck of a lot of professional opportunities. People usually go to one or three places. They end up either teaching archaeology, they end up in a museum, or they end up doing what they call a contract archaeology, where you're actually hired to go and excavate a site that might be in the way of a freeway or, or doing a survey. And there's not a lot of jobs, and it's kind of a dilemma whether to recommend it, to go into it. But on the other hand, I am not a dream squelcher. If this is something people really want to do, and there are a lot of young people very interested in this stuff, just go in with your eyes wide open with the notion that you may spend years and years in school and never be employed in this field, but nonetheless, maybe you will be. So I try and be realistic, but also very positive.
0: Well, it it is a very fascinating book you've written, Beneath the Sands of Egypt, Adventures of an Unconventional Archaeologist. Uh, Dr. Ryan, I want to thank you very much for your time today.
1: Oh, you're very welcome.
0: And you were just listening to Dr. Donald Ryan discussing unconventional archaeology. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. to play the game. It is called the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Archaeological Find. So for the following five items, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they were found in a thousand years by archaeologists, would they be classified as junk or treasure? And maybe a little reason why. Dr. Ryan, are you ready to play the game?
1: I am ready right now. I already have a comment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have a comment on the game. It all it, it presupposes that we have some sort of apocalyptic scenario where we've lost all knowledge. It, re, it requires some sort of giant loss of knowledge. That's that's my only comment. Okay. Well,
0: I can envision all kinds of ways that could happen. But let's presume that has happened. Okay. And uh, here we go. In a thousand years, junker treasure uh, archaeologists have found an iPod.
1: Make this thing play. You got music that's a thousand years old. I'd like to listen to a thousand-year-old music.
0: It, it might be enlightening you. To like, yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> no,
1: it, it'd be a treasure trove of uh, cultural enlightenment uh, if you can make it work.
0: Yes, maybe um, resurrect Steve Jobs or something. Back. All right, number two, junker treasure: some uh, Texas Hold'em poker chips.
1: Uh, it might baffle people. But you're looking at the thing. It might be a little difficult to figure out what these things are. The plastic would probably survive very well, and uh, sure. Uh,
0: how about number three, a Snuggie?
1: Snuggie. Now, <laughs> it, depends, it depends on what archaeologists call the, the environment of deposition, because I think the Snuggie, it'd have to be from a very well-dry context where that kind of material is going to survive. If you, uh, assuming it's the material survives, you look at this thing, Wow. Well, be interesting, but you know I have a hard time looking at anything as junk as an archaeologist, but I think it's another thing that might baffle people. I, I think they might get the idea that it can be worn because it has arm-like things, but somebody might say it's a priestly vestment or who knows what they'd come up with. If, uh, if you do the default like so many archaeologists do and say, well, it has a religious or political significance. I'm a little more careful than that, but as a junk, it'd be, be kind of interesting.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, number four, uh, a dollar bill.
1: Well, it, it depends. Uh, if we retain the numerical system of one, two, three, four, and we, we understand that, we'll look at it and we'll see the one, and we'll say this says one on it, and if we find more than one, we'll say these. maybe this is I think you could, you could probably reasonably infer that maybe it's money. People have been collecting coins. Coins first appeared maybe 500, 600 BC, and people have been collecting coins for centuries, if not two millennia. You can find Roman coins, you can find all these things. So, the dollar and the papers preserved one, I think, might infer. It depends in, depending on your knowledge of symbols and such. So, if you still kept one through whatever the numerical system, it'd be easier to infer than just finding a paper with with a guy's head on it with a wig and a, and a grandiose monument. So not junk.
0: All right. And finally, number five, it's Viagra.
1: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Maybe if the label's intact, but then again, now this this is going to be something you're going to have to give to your probably your specialized chemical colleagues, because even if the label and the name, if you don't understand the label or the name, you're not going to know what these are. I, I wouldn't call them junk, but I'd say they're probably mystery chemical things, and I think you could probably determine their composition if there is a way of determining the... Predetermining defects. You need a chemist to help you out, but I'm not sure if you could come to the conclusion of what that stuff's actually for. Well, I'm sorry I didn't say anything's junk, but <laughs> I try and look at that from an archaeological standpoint.
0: That's probably a good thing, I guess. <laughs> yeah. all, all right, well, Dr. Ryan, I want to thank you very much for sticking around, playing our game, and, and again, of course, talking about your, your great book Beneath the Sands of Egypt, Adventures of an Unconventional Archaeologist. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Okay, you're very, very welcome.